Who's going to be the next head of gaming for Netflix? That that wreck is out. Aaron Bush. It's going to be Aaron for well, sure. That that, that was a com that was a compelling prediction, man. Very well articulated. I'd hire you. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, thank you. I would not hire me to work in Hollywood, for what it's worth. But I, I appreciate that. Buongiorno, listener, and welcome to the sixth episode of the Metacast, the show in which we explore the business of video games. I'm your host, Nico, and today I'm joined by Janie Perissini, Pierce Kicks, and Aaron Bush. Um, and so I'm literally just back from my two weeks of honeymoon in Italy, and as you might suspect from the lack of episodes, things did not go 100% according to plan in my absence. But that's okay, totally okay. I have 14 days of carb loading with ample pizza and pasta behind me, and I'm totally ready to provide you with weekly gaming industry content for the rest of the summer. And so um, as a little wedding present to myself, I've selected two of my current favorite gaming topics to explore in this episode. First, we are continuing our discussion on blockchain and games with a focus on the newly emerging play-to-earn business model. And then we shift our focus to VR and the big moves that Facebook is making in that space. The Metacast team also gave me a small wedding present because we have some awesome heavyweights on the podcast and, and on the panel today. I am very happy to welcome Pierce Kicks to the show. Pierce is one of those people that makes me feel very insecure about my life decisions because at such a young age, he has already done so many awesome things. Uh, he has co-founded Azar Capital, a crypto slash venture investment fund. He later became a venture partner at Delphi Digital and now is part of the investment team at Bitcraft, where he runs their crypto investment arm. However, most impressively, Pierce has reached global rank 69, nice, in Rainbow Six Siege. Pierce, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. So I, I should be asking you what excites you in the gaming industry these days, but I feel that everything you do already pretty much reflects that. So maybe you can share with us what game you're currently playing. Um, probably Warzone the most at the moment, regrettably. It's not very exotic, but uh, it's, it's a nice casual play. A bit of Rainbow Six and... Uh, Occasionally at the Jewel Arena on RuneScape, you can find me, but uh, that's about it. Nice. I've spent a full year of all my free time playing Warzone. I finally off it, but uh, I, I get it. All right. I also like to welcome Janie Perissini, who made a super exciting career move and is now VP of Growth at Ga Gala Games. Janie, welcome back. Hey, Nico. It's great to be back. Awesome. And then finally, there's Master the Meta's own Aaron Bush. Aaron, how are you doing? I'm doing well. I mean, you noted that we we've really struggled the past couple of weeks, and so really glad to have you back. Also, really glad to have Piers and Janie here. I I think I first met Piers. I don't know, maybe like a year ago. We had an intro call, and Janie a couple months ago. And on both of those, I pretty quickly realized, like, yep, these people are legit. <laughs> like, need to figure out how to rope them in somehow and learn from them. So yeah, really excited about. Uh, today's group, what we're going to be talking about. It's going to be going to be fun. Nice. All right. And so finally, before we get into things, as today's bonus segment, I am introducing a new segment called Bolt Predictions. I have instructed all of our panelists to prepare a bold prediction in the gaming industry. And I'm very curious what they'll be coming up with. But that uh, will be for the end of the episode. So with that aside, let's get into today's topics. First, um, let's reopen our discussion on blockchain and games. 
So uh, I received a message from our listener, Stephen, Stephen from Animative Games after our previous episode telling me that there's so much more to blockchain than we touched upon in our first discussion. And he's absolutely right. Um, we're going to need a whole lot more episodes to get to the bottom of this. Um, so for this episode, let's start discussing a new emerging business model that I've been seeing pop up more and more, and that is play to earn. Um, so I've been following Pierce specifically for a few months, or actually, yeah, a few months now. Um, and he brought me onto Axie Infinity, uh, which has been absolutely blowing up in the past literally week. So um, they now post more than uh, almost $100 million in weekly sales and are currently dwarfing other DeFi protocols uh, uh, in revenue. So, um, yeah, Pierce, uh, you're a big fan. You've been following for them for a while. Could you quickly introduce what Axie is doing? Yeah, so um, Axie Infinity is one of the first sort of uh, play-to-earn games um, to kind of reach critical mass, perhaps the sort of uh, breakout case for it. Um, it's a game, uh, Delphi, uh, you know, where I came from, has felt very strongly about for a while. We actually sort of designed the governance token back in the day and also led their, led their, their seed round. Um, but yeah, they're effectively, it's, it's a game where you have different characters called Axies, uh, digital battle pets, as we call them, which you can use to fight other players, sort of fight other, other teams and also fight sort of enemies in this world in order to earn an income, essentially, in the form of one of their in-game currencies called SLP. And, you know, already we've seen this kind of uh, explode across a, a number of uh, emerging markets in particular, like the Philippines, where this kind of Axie craze has gone pretty, pretty nuts, especially thanks to uh, COVID. You know, you now have uh, expressions like don't be driving taxis, you're driving Axies. Um, and there's all sorts of crazy stuff going on with, you know, adverts for cars that you can pay in SLP, this game currency with and whatnot. And yeah, I mean, there's a bunch of local sort of uh, trade desks and whatnot where you can switch directly from game currency to fiat currency and whatnot. But yeah, pretty much the sort of pioneer of this uh, play to earn movement and, and super excited by the recent traction. Hmm. And so explain to me how it works, because I'm used to, you know, you have to, you have to pay to play. And now people are actually in some way creating value by playing a game. How does that work? So technically, you do still need to pay to play here, but I'll, I'll get on to, to how that manifests in a sec. But essentially, once you have your sort of team of axes, you need three axes in order to form a team. And once you have them, you can play uh, sort of different types of game, I guess, within within the sort of game world. Um, there's sort of PVE components and, and PVP, as I've alluded to. And essentially, for winning uh, in any of those game instances, you're rewarded with this SLP currency, which has a real-world value, as I've described. And that's that's essentially how people can extract some money from the game. But one of the sort of uh, more interesting things to do in the game is this concept of breeding your axes. So if I have, um, you know, if if I have uh, sort of two axes that I want to breed. I can essentially um, pay a fee that's also in SLP, so we kind of had to have a supply sync with that there in order to yeah create more axes essentially, um, which can then be sold on the marketplace to generate more sort of you know more income. But obviously, you obviously need to, you need to get these three axes in the first place, right? As I've alluded to, and the floor price of axes has kind of been increasing because there's a bunch of demand. So. Um, what we've actually seen emerge is this idea of a scholarship program. Um, so essentially, I, as an owner of a team of axes, can lend it out to a player who wants to get involved with the game. 
he can deploy it in the relevant game context, generate yields, and then the, the person that borrowed it keeps, let's say, 70% of the yield, and then 30% goes back to me, the sort of proprietor of those axes. And these scholarship programs are actually blowing up at a pretty major scale right now. We're starting to see a bunch of really interesting projects emerge, in particular one called Yield Guild, um, which is a DAO focused on exactly this, on facilitating scholarships, on accumulating, you know, a massive war chest of assets that this sort of guild owns and lends out to its player base to perform yield generating activities. Okay, and all the revenue sharing, the 70-30 split, it's all built in? So that, that depends. I mean, different scholarship programs, it might be 65-35, and also the manner in which that's uh, enforced can also differ. Um, for something like Yield Guild, so essentially you got your yield that's generated, someone has you know, borrowed uh, axes from the guild, 70% of the yield generated stays with them. 20% goes to the sort of community manager, the guy that was, you know, locally managing that that sort of program on behalf of the guild, and 10% flows to the protocol treasury. And in those instances, yeah, that that becomes streamlined and automated. I have a question for you Piers too. So I looked this morning and like the Axies token market cap hit like 850 million like US dollars or something, uh, which is probably not many people realize that that like economy is that big. And I'm just curious, I, I have a feeling most people don't quite understand the role of tokens and how they retain value and how that kind of like economy, I guess you could call it, grows over time. Could you just talk a little bit about that? Yeah, for sure. Um, so the token you're alluding to there is called AXS. That's the governance token for this protocol. So SLP was the in-game token and AXS is a governance token. And what that governance token does is essentially, um, basically now the game, all fees generated from sort of the marketplace, from any any activities around, around the game are actually flowing to an on-chain treasury, right? That sit in this sort of smart contract on-chain. And what this governance token is, is essentially a way for players to, it's like a very high level proxy for the entire game economy. People ultimately will be able to essentially vote over how that pool of funds gets allocated in the future, as well as other you know key decisions related to the game and sort of how it's evolving. Um, so that's kind of, yeah, what the, what the governance token does on that side. And it's also tied in a bit more intimately to the game in that, you know, I mentioned there's a breeding fee that's payable in SLP. Part of the breeding fee is now also paid in AXS. So it's beginning to be interwoven into the game economy more. Um, but yeah, at a high level, that's what it does. It's kind of a proxy for the for this whole game economy. Um, and yeah, it's, it's pretty, pretty exciting to see the growth rate of that recently. You mentioned it's at an 800 mil market cap. I think it's fully diluted valuations at like three or four billion dollars or something crazy now. Yeah. So it's pretty, pretty exciting. Wow. Cool. All right. So Janie, you're also working on blockchain projects, maybe not yet of that magnitude, but could you talk a bit about <laughs> what, what Gala is doing? Of course. So I came from EA uh, to Gala with, you know, there's a, a quite a bit of interesting folks part of the project. So a co-founder of Zynga, you know, a former co-worker of mine at EA that, that headed up product for EA Mobile. Gala is is essentially just a, a new type of, of gaming platform. So it's it's all of those buzzwords that, you know, if any of you are SNL fans like Stefan, the the club promoter, like it's got blockchain, we have NFT, we have, you know. But uh, the idea is that players can earn gala tokens uh, by playing our game. So uh, one of our, our games that you can play currently is Townstar. 
Uh, give it a try. Uh, and it's also partially owned by the players. So similarly to, to maybe the how, you know, a percentage of tokens goes back into the central fund for Axie Infinity. Similarly, you know, there are voting rights for players. There's um, this concept of nodes and founders nodes. So you can run our, our games, uh, you know, on, uh, as a percentage of your CPU and you get, you know, kind of rewards and compensation for that. And um, I think ultimately, too, this idea that when you play the game, there's ownership of the content within the game as a player. And I think that's like the newer thing that I'm as a coming from the free to play market, I'm really intrigued by. Uh, and uh, we have a few games uh, coming up to um, more of an MMO style game called Mirandus, uh, which uh, our NFT marketplace is currently up and live. And we've seen some things like people buying million dollar citadels in the game. And then, uh, but similarly like to, to Axie Infinity with Townstar, there are people in the Philippines or emerging markets that have bought houses with what they have, you know, a- acquired within the game. So uh, that is absolutely like a, a trend and, and something in human stories that we have seen as well with players. And, you know, but I don't, I don't want to like sugarcoat that this is a, a great way to make it a living, but it it is great to hear these stories that, you know, we're not bankrupting people, uh, which I've heard in the free to play market that there are people that have actually paid a mortgage and, and have a home. And that's awesome to hear. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. For me, it almost feels or sounds like too good to be true where, you know, there's, you can play, you do stuff that's, that's, that's fun. You know, you can play games and, and suddenly you can start earning money with that. With that. Um, do you expect this to be implemented as a standard practice if, if there's companies making money of this? I mean, you know, I come from DraftKings too. That I would also say DraftKings is not a great way to earn a living. And mm-hmm. you can earn money, but I don't know the ROI is there. You lose a lot of money, you know, you can lose a lot of money too. Uh, I don't know if I've ever been net positive on playing daily fantasy sports, but you know, that's the same thing. You can, yeah, you can, you know, you can earn tokens, you can earn, you know, whatever in Axie Infinity. But, you know, as, as Pierce said, you have to have three NFTs to start mm. the game. Now that's something you have to pay in order to actually enter the game, right? So, you know, I would caution that like, it's not the, you know, get rich quick scheme. This is mm. a this is a model that I think will help create more value exchange than free to play ever tried to promise, which I think we all, you know, coming from the free to play market for so long, that's what we, that's what we did is, you know, they're, hey, you know, buy these coins or these gems. And, you know, the assumption was that players were getting some value. But at the end of the day, if that player leaves the game, they don't get anything. It's not theirs. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there is no value at the end of the day when you actually mm-hmm. think about it. Yeah. And, and then, you know, from from my perspective, there's like uh, two different sides to it, right? On, on the one hand, you've got from the player's perspective, opportunity to, you know, earn some uh, sort of yield in these different game ecosystems, or at the very least, after you've invested in a game ecosystem, right, you obviously own the actual assets and you have some capacity to extract that value should you want to move on ultimately. And then on the flip side is like from the developer perspective, um, you know, what are the perks of these kind of shared economics in gaming? Um, You know, one of the immediate ones is that you know, your kind of customer acquisition cost kind of drops massively in that 
once you give a player base shared ownership in the game economy, the kind of evangelism that's unlocked, you know, it's it's in their best interest to go out and like help bring other people into this game because, you know, there's that incentive alignment and, and they like want to be a part of it moving forwards. I think, you know, you look at kind of engagement and, and retention on these things when there's real skin in the game, people feel particularly strongly about them. Obviously, it's too early to say, but I would suggest that player lifetimes are, are kind of increased around a lot of these game ecosystems too. Um, so I think it's a really useful tool from that perspective, for, for, from the developer perspective as well. Um, you know, if I was sort of a indie dev, I'd definitely be exploring exploring this whole domain. Mm-hmm. Now let's say, I don't know if you listened to previous episodes, but I'm hypothetically building a game. Let's say I'm interested in, in implementing this type of NFT into what I'm doing, where I put the assets that I provide to players, I, I, I make them on the blockchain. How hard is this for an indie developer, uh, knowing that the skill sets that I have uh, to implement I mean, yeah, right now it is difficult, right? You need to know how to write some solidity to deploy contracts to the Ethereum base chain. But I mean, one of the really exciting things about where we are in the market is just the extent to which, well, the speed at which kind of the infrastructure that, that sort of facilitates this stuff is improving. Um, you know, whether that's scalability solutions, dropping the cost to actually mint and, and use these things, whether that's on the usability side, you know, new wallet solutions that aren't super scary and have, you know, seed recovery and like have to back up your, your seed phrases and whatnot. Um, and then also at a higher level, the actual game developer tool set, you know, there are a bunch of projects working on building out SDKs and developer suites that are going to dramatically uh, improve, you know, the sort of ease with with uh, ease of engaging with these things. So um, I think, you know, even in 12 months, that's going to look very different. But yeah, right now, there's definitely the sort of Venn diagram of game developers and crypto developers and, and the people that sit in the middle, are, you know, uh, few and far between. But that'll definitely change. I think, you know, early sort of breakout cases like Axie will you know, continue to kind of turn heads and, and maybe people will actually start to, to you know, hear these things out uh, a bit more. And, and by the time they might be willing to kind of, you know, dip a toe in, I think the, uh, yeah, the developer tooling and the uh, ease of engagement will have improved a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's, a, you know, Gala Games is is a platform for game developers too. So I, I think that you're, you know, not all blockchains are created equal. So Axie Infinity started on Ethereum, but it's slow and it's expensive. And then they switched to their own technology some dapper labs built on uh can't i think i don't know piercy probably know but now it's on flow right so they too switched because of what the business required um quicker transactions cheaper and then yeah you have this idea of a wallet too how do you make a wallet uh accessible and quick for a player to create without having to go through all of these jumps and all different apps and all this kind of stuff then go back into the game um, mm-hmm. so I think that you're going to see a lot more of like those kinds of services or platforms that make it really easy for traditional game developers to like, just say, I have a great game. I want to build it. Uh, and you know, kind of all of that is similarly like, like you build, you know, with unity and all these game engines too, that have a lot built into it. I think you're going to see like these almost like blockchain game engines, mm-hmm. uh, you know, be available for game developers. I'll just add that from some conversations I've had, it seems like a lot of developers still just have a lot of questions about what best practices are from like a game design lens. Like there are lots of questions about like how to balance like authentic fun of, you know, more traditional games with financial incentives, some type 
of some type, how to give community governance power without, you know, to many developers without destroying their creativity or without putting like entire projects at risk, um, you know, how to avoid pay to win scenarios, how to like retain scarcity while still adding content, etc. And so I think there still are a lot of best practices that need to be sorted out. And even depending on the type of genre type of game you do, the best practices could be completely different. So I think it'll it'll just probably take some time for, you know, the brave pioneers out there to sort of kind of chart the waters, sort of at the same time that a lot of this infrastructure is making it easier for developers too. And sort of once those two things come together, like once it actually becomes like easy and feasible for developers and just people, like normal everyday people to, to, to jump in. Um, and people have in general have wider confidence in building something they think that they can work because building games is hard enough as is and it's even harder adding on all these other elements that add some layer of uncertainty so i think yeah i think it just will take some time for those lessons to occur but that doesn't mean that there aren't good answers to them I absolutely yeah. totally agree that, that that was one thing i i wanted to touch upon but you uh you just nailed it there that there's definitely like a you know new chapter of game design kind of new economic realities around them um and yeah like if we solved all of the technological constraints tomorrow it would still take some time to converge upon you know those those agreed upon sort of best practices as you say so yeah as you say there's the brave few sort of pioneer in this uh this new domain but um yeah i don't know i'm i'm excited by everything we're seeing yeah, the industry is going to make mistakes. I mean, there's going to be regulatory stuff. There's a lot of gray areas too. So I think it's also like already best practices are for your community. Like don't bullshit them, you know, be overly transparent. This kind of early adopter community can smell bullshit a mile away too. So if you don't have a game that's actually, you know, it's all fluff, uh, they're going to suss that out. If they, if they don't feel heard, they're going to feel that. You know, and then, yeah, on the regulatory side, too, it's like being transparent about make sure you don't say things that aren't real. Don't promise things that aren't real and um, be careful about your messaging and making sure that you're not yeah, promising, like, get rich quick. This is a great way to, you know, make a ton of money kind of stuff, because that's, you know, coming from the daily fantasy sports world, that's stuff that uh, does not fly long term, um, whether it's because players start to backlash or be, and or because governments start to come after you. I feel like that's wise. I also <laughs> I also wonder, I, I sort of have a theory, and this could be stupid. You peers can tell me if this is dumb, but I think that sort of like like phase one of these play to earn games centered around like a core community of typically like crypto fans that are willing to jump through hoops, support something, um, even if it's not necessarily better than other games. And I think the second wave will need to be defined, you know, by games themselves that are easy to get into, easy to benefit from, you know, are are good games, are shareable, but I think are also potentially memeable. And I have a my theory is that what breaks the mold first could be kind of random, like Crypto Kitties was, you know, a few years mm -hmm. ago. But I think that mainstream adoption might actually stem from First, getting the crypto world involved, and then winning over a lot of the same like Reddit-like crowds that get <laughs> obsessed with things like Dogecoin, and I can totally see like that young, you know, generally like tech-savvy and financially motivated demographic piling into games with tokens or assets that they can collectively rally behind, with the theory that you know, 
together as they've seen with GameStop and AMC and just like like meme stocks that they could also have like meme meme tokens around you know memed games and I don't I don't necessarily think that that is healthy but I could totally see that as like one of the first waves <laughs> that that gets into into some of these these games in a more mainstream way am I am I crazy for thinking something like that is is possible if not likely i don't think you're wrong i mean look at you know hackers hacked um um apex apex see i should know that right with yeah with titanfall like because they want to be heard like you know players want a a way to be heard and i think for so long as you get bigger as a game developer, you you stop listening to players and you start thinking that like you know better than the players. And I think that there is a day of reckoning coming in, um, and one of the vehicles I think is going to be blockchain uh, to facilitate that of making it more democratized about the kinds of games that want to be built, who's interested, who's willing to like put some skin in the game in that uh, being built and players feeling more ownership over and even the success of that game. You know, uh, I think that you're, you know, there's a lot of uh, natural just influencing support from the community when they get behind a project and, and they almost act as like the the best evangelist for the project at the end of the day, not the company behind it. Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. I think there's the, the positive side of, you know, you see the effects of, you know, online communities rallying behind stuff and uh, absurd things happening and then you have the flip side with the games right where if a developer does become complacent or whatever like these people could wreak havoc on your game you know they could just dump the whole game economy now like there's a way that um you know the user base really does have a very direct and visceral impact in a way that maybe we haven't quite i mean sure viral reddit threads (laughs) booing developers is one thing but everyone dumping assets on the market or something is is a whole new degree of uh you know um allowing people to fight back almost if, if things were to go off track. So we'll see what comes. Mm-hmm. This is an area I'm, I'm particularly interested in because, uh, as I said, I've played Warzone for a year. And uh, if sometimes I felt so powerless in the decisions that were being made about the game where every new update there was some way that people found a way to uh, use Steam glitches where they <laughs> could survive outside of the gas in, so indefinitely. Annoying. And it was super annoying because you win anyway i'm not gonna go into that uh that's me just ranting but anyway um pierce i wanted to understand better because you talked about uh axie where there was some kind of voting for the community um and this is something i think is particularly interesting for um i mean particularly for for as an example warzone could you could you go into how how that works so yeah essentially um as this kind of community treasury goes live these tokens, hence the name governance token, have a sort of voting power associated with them, right? And so this isn't unique to games, of course, but in crypto more broadly around, you know, DAOs in general or, or different sort of protocol decisions, often, um, you know, the users will have a say, basically, will be able to vote with their tokens on the outcome of an event. So over time, you know, they'll probably start out as, as relatively uh, small decisions. But um, I mean, ultimately, the plan is to you know, really fulfill the definition of a player-owned economy with these types of games, whereby all major decisions are actually subject to a vote. You know, obviously that's an interesting prospect. Um, There are some potential immediate drawbacks. I mean, some of the governance decisions we've seen around other games already, um, although they're not of major consequence, you know, there was a, a recent example which was to basically 10x the overall token supply of a project because 
there were relatively few tokens and the price of each token was quite a lot. And psychologically, you know, people feel weird about buying one thing that's worth $300 versus three bucks for whatever. And it became pretty quick, uh, pretty clear in, in, in votes like that, that maybe sometimes, you know, we're not focusing on the, the best thing for the project right now. A vote like that might, you know, be better off down the line. It's not of immediate relevance to the development cycle. And oftentimes it might just become clear that maybe the user base doesn't actually know best in, in certain instances, right? So I'm not suggesting that this is some revolutionary going to save all problems in gaming. And equally, it's not like this stuff hasn't happened before, right? Um, take RuneScape, a game I spent a, an astonishingly part, a large part of my life on. Um, you know, they had, they had a, you know, well, you'll remember the free trade votes, bring back the wilderness, the 07 votes. And actually, after they brought back RuneScape, you know, old school RuneScape, now there is a polling system in game and they vote on everything. We, they, they don't need to ask us some of these things. It's like, should we add a cross? Should we move the position of the cross on the screen? So, you know, there's, there's a spectrum of this stuff. Um, there's a, it's, it's been tried before for sure. But, you know, now, now we have this kind of radical transparency. It all happens on chain. Um, and oftentimes they can structure a vote such that, like, you know, without question, maybe the contracts, maybe the tweaks are already written. If the vote passes, it goes through, period. So it's just a new evolution of it that I think is super interesting. Mm-hmm. I'd also love to hear your take, almost just from like an entrepreneur lens. Like, what do you think for for entrepreneurs who are who are interested in this space, but maybe are nervous about the concept of like a DAO versus like a company or like a game that they're more fu fully in control of? Can you just walk through like what the trade offs are that like these founders and entrepreneurs who are interested in something like a DAO that they need to like be aware of and think through? Yeah, well, I think um, I think the concept of a DAO is, uh, you know, over the next five to ten years, going to radically become very sort of, you know, commonplace. I think it's just think of it as a corporate structure that's global in nature by default and native to the internet, right? Generally speaking, that's more efficient. It, also, completely transparent. Everything exists on chain. You can see it. Generally speaking, it's more efficient at capital formation and deployment. You know, ultimately, I think the way developers raise money is going to be through more DAO-like structures and whatnot. Um, you know, doing sort of token sales, you issue X amount of tokens, you do these public sales and, you know, you raise money into sort of a treasury or whatever. Um, in terms of, you know, the, the, the trade-offs, I think obviously it's very early on in the evolution of these things, right? There's not any real sort of legal framework around a lot of it. Um, you know, if you're operating in this domain, traditional banking infrastructure might be difficult to access. Um, you know, there's a lot of legal headaches that come with it for sure. Um, I, yeah, I mean, having not built a games company myself, I couldn't get into too much of the nuance of how it compares to uh, traditional stuff. But um, I'd say the major drawbacks right now are a really nascency of the infrastructure, the tooling, it's kind of inaccessible to, you know, the mainstream consumer for the time being. And the regulatory and legal side of things is very obscure and everywhere you go tells you something different. Although we're starting to see, you know, stuff like um, I think the Wyoming LLC, you get like these legal wrappers for DAOs now and stuff. So definitely the interface uh, in terms of between the traditional regulatory ecosystem and these new on-chain wicked structures, that's also evolving. But um, I'm pretty confident that regulators aren't, you know, that well known for being super quick to move on these kind of things very true all right it feels like we could continue talking about this forever but there's other stuff to talk about and there's a 
at the end of the episode to keep in mind. Um, so let's let's move on to the next topic, which is VR, Facebook, and the future of gaming. So if some of you may know, I have bought my, or I've received a Oculus Quest 2 for my birthday a few months back, and I've been really enjoying playing Beat Saber on there. It has some flaws, but it is really, really fun. And I do see a lot of potential, especially with these uh, relatively cheap devices. Whenever I let my friends play, um, and I tell them that it's only 250 euros. They were like, whoa, that's way less than I expected. So um, yeah, it's, it's been some, some good news by Facebook. And so now um, uh, Facebook in March, I think it came out that they have 20% of their employees or total of 10,000 people working on VR. And so my question to you guys is, um, as VR is still mainly used for games, is headcounts going to be the deciding factor with uh, who, well, that decides who's going to be you know, the winner of VR? Aaron, what do you think? Yeah, I don't know if it's the deciding factor, um, but it definitely matters. I mean, building the leading VR ecosystem, meaning hardware, platform software, content, lots of different types of partnerships, that takes a lot of work. And having a large team enables more complex improvements to be found at a faster speed than would probably be done otherwise. Um, and you know, if you're Facebook and you're looking to dominate or at least capture as much market share as possible, getting the best product to market the fastest is really important. And the more consumers that embrace Oculus as a result of that speed, the more consumers are probably going to be locked into that ecosystem, which then increases the odds of future consumers joining that ecosystem in the future too. So yeah, I mean, I think it's it's really important. And I also think that, you know, VR and I mean we could even like say like mixed reality you know let's call it you know it's still a ways away from super mainstream adoption but it's pretty clear that you know as a whole this is one of the largest and most important consumer tech trends in a long time and Facebook views that as a pretty important part of its future both in terms of that being where future social encounters can take place where people are going to spend their time. And honestly, like because Facebook is blocked from making other notable social related acquisitions, like they need to go all in internally on something big that is next gen. And for them, that is this, it's VR and maybe some other stuff connected to that in the future. So yeah, it makes sense why they're, they're putting so many people behind this, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I think it's definitely uh, important to acknowledge the role that they've played in advancing the medium. As you say, you know, it's 249 bucks. I think I saw some crazy target sale. I don't know why I was getting US adverts, but um, it was like 199 bucks for a while for these things. And they're incredible, right? That like st for standalone hardware, they're insane. And yeah, they've got 10,000 people working on it, but maybe that's what it takes to ship software updates that boost frame rates the way they do. Like it's pretty, it's pretty nuts what they're doing. That said... I kind of view it as a as a necessary evil. I do find it kind of crazy uh, in terms of you know, arguably the biggest data monopoly in the world now just making this crazy bet where they've harnessed these economies of set of scale and you know um, seem to be entrenching themselves to some degree. You look at you know overall VR revenues and what portion the Oculus Store now accounts for. Um, you know, for developers, it's making more and more sense to you know 
focus on the Quest Store primarily and maybe PC VR kind of second. Um, that for me is a bit concerning. I'd definitely love to see some more major competitors in the standalone space. Um, I don't know how we get there. It's kind of difficult to do hardware uh, like they're doing it. Um, but yeah, who knows? Um, we'll we'll see where it goes. I think one other really interesting thing though is just seeing um, you know projects like SideQuest and how like I think about a third of the overall Oculus user base use SideQuest now. They've now made it so you can install it via mobile and the next update is going to be you can just install it on the headset itself and obviously it's capturing all of these developers who aren't quite yet ready to go to the main store or graduate or whatever. There's there's definitely some weird mismatch in terms of developer talent and we, we definitely need to find a way to accommodate that that's you know not this one channel um, but we'll see. Mm -hmm. So I look at so yeah. Zuck announced that Facebook is is going all in on the metaverse, that they're going to be like the next metaverse company. And Zuck also in 2012 said that Facebook is now a mobile, a mobile company, if anyone remembers that, if anyone was old enough to remember that. Um, but it still took years after announcing we are, not, we are a mobile company in 2012. It took years to get their actual revenue to be a majority mobile. You know, they acquired Instagram, they did a lot uh, with WhatsApp. And, and so it did take time, but they ended up, yeah, like Facebook is considered now like their revenues come from their mobile apps, not like Facebook.com. And I think that that's going to be the case for for VR and the metaverse. I think that that Facebook probably, you know, if, if that's what Zuck really wants to do, they're going to hell or high water. They're probably going to want, they're probably going to win that war. And I think that, you know, the, the relationship with Apple uh, maybe fueled to a little bit of that um, so that they aren't so reliant on revenues coming from devices like iPhone that they can control the device as well. So I think that's a big, a big reason too, is that they lost the war with mobile phones, you know, and they actually launched a phone. I don't know if anyone remembers that too, that failed. Um, so I think this is like their, their play to be like, we're not going to, we're not going to lose the metaverse. Like we will be the platform and the device of the metaverse. Which is ironic considering that they're setting themselves up as a as a walled garden <laughs> of sorts. <laughs> well, you know, Apple Apple says that they're this privacy compliant company, so I've heard crazier things in the news before. <laughs> yeah. So. yeah. Yeah. We'll see though, you know, if they control like, you know, the medium through which people are, if they control all these headsets and you know, they, they block proper sideloading and accessing a bunch of, you know, interoperable open metaverse stuff. And I don't know, does that does that mean people default to Horizon and their ecosystem? Or does it mean people are willing to pay more for different hardware to, you know, opt into that more? I mean, look at the iPhone's expensive and it still rules the app store. So I, I don't think that that's a consumer. I don't think consumers see it that way. Mm. Um, you know, they want a clean experience. They want access. They want to know that what their what game or the quality of the the game that they're playing is sound. And I think that that's what early on the App Store did is that they were super selective about what kinds of games were going to be launched on the App Store. Um, and I think that that's what Facebook is going to do. It's going to be highly curated at first, and then you know kind of expand from there. 
Um, I, I, I was going to say, though, like, it's not totally uncommon that, you know, a really, like, crazy kind of uh, experience or sort of game ecosystem dictates, like, platform choice, right? But people switch from Xbox to PS5 or, or vice versa off, off sort of content. And I do think if this idea of the, the open metaverse and, you know, hopefully Gala Games driving a lot of that is, is sufficiently, um, you know, enticing that people are willing to make some degree of sacrifice in terms of convenience especially off the back of you know Cambridge Analytica and some of the uh, other things that we seem quick to forget I'd like to think that you know that's a that's a switch people would make but time will tell mm -hmm. yeah and so I feel like hardware wise the quest 2 is very affordable there's some pretty decent games on there as well. Um, but it feels like VR still hasn't reached the real mainstream yet. What do you guys think is missing here? Aaron, what are your thoughts? I mean, I think there's still a chicken and egg problem of some sorts, uh, which is, you know, consumers and content. You know, the hardware will continue to improve and get lighter. And it's it's already great, you know, for what it is and at its price point. But ultimately, I think what's going to drive adoption is content and experiences. And I'm totally bought in that <laughs> that mainstream adoption is possible for this, if not inevitable. But I think Facebook needs to help more and more developers see a clear path to success with AAA-like experiences. And, you know, those AAA-like games, you know, are big budget games typically. And <laughs> in order to justify those kinds of games, you need more people to buy them. And that sort of is the chicken and, and egg. And so... Facebook, I, I think, is doing a pretty good job of what they can of, you know, keeping prices in check, um, you know, bringing games in-house to ensure that, like, more, like, early adopters can get in to then just help, you know, more developers justify the cost of developing on these platforms. But I think it'll still take a little bit of time for more developers to justify, you know, like, the higher budget experiences that can, like like really wow people and you know cause noise and cause a lot of people to to want to own vr i think you know you know half-life alix which um steam or valve produced uh you know is a good example of that for for themselves not really on on oculus um and i think we just need more of those types of of games to really hit the market and i think something like like alix was a bit of uh It was a bit of charity in some way. Uh, they they really went all out without having you know a a large consumer base to really buy that game. And you know if they waited a few years, it would have sold multiples times better than mm -hmm. when they launched it at the time. And I don't I don't think we need more charity necessarily from developers, uh, but we need we need people like Facebook to to help you know make the math work for these developers faster and that'll ultimately help um streamline adoption I'm, uh, there are other things but to me like that chicken and egg content consumer problem is the biggest one mm -hmm. janie or uh, pierce anything to add for facebook to like win the metaverse i see like two, a, a two-pronged strategy i think they lock in a really expensive ip to Uh, their to their gaming platform that you can only get with their with their device. And I think the second is you get the younger audience into the metaverse for more just casual, like not gamers, but just casual, you know, metaverse stuff going into more being a lifestyle. And then 
and then their parents follow similar to how Facebook you know, became, you know, at one time MySpace was bigger than Facebook, but Facebook got tings and then their parents followed and then the tings left and now they're on, you know, these, and I think that that's the, that's probably, they already have a game plan for how they won uh, the war in different categories. And I think that they learned a lot from failing with the iPhone and, and the device fight for mobile. Uh, and I think that they're, they're going to use that to help with figuring out how to win the device war in the metaverse. And then to get actual mainstream consumers, I think they're going to just take it out of the playbook they've used for years, decades at this point. Mm -hmm. So, um, Zuck, if you need a tip on getting the, the best IP for your Oculus, I would suggest getting Harry Potter. Just imagine you've got your Oculus and you're just <laughs> waving your wand and you're casting spells. Seriously. I've been thinking It's... about that and I would buy that immediately. So, um, Zuck, you can call me anytime. Uh, I'll, I'll help you out. Um, so, Aaron, the, the something to add on to the point that you were making where um, Facebook or any VR company needs to make sure that developers can monetize what they're building. So, Facebook recently announced experiments with ads in VR um, and has faced some some pretty huge backlash. And, uh, Aaron, what are your thoughts on, on, on ads? I mean, Facebook is an ads company. So, was it anyone's surprise really <laughs> that they're they're going to start rolling ads out through through vr no just just to clarify that it, it's it's in paid titles too was the plan yeah, which yeah. is even more outrageous yeah well you know yeah i've, I've had experience seeing that backlash at a, a former company so <laughs> <laughs> yeah and, yeah i mean i think i mean facebook is an ads company so it's inevitable that they're going to test ads in different spaces i also don't think they're stupid um like if there if there are issues especially issues that could get in the way of adoption or engagement or something like that like i think they'll have their priorities in check i also th like i don't think all ads are necessarily bad they just kind of need to find the right balance like they have a storefront like that's a great place <laughs> for for certain types of ads and in some in some cases like ads can unlock new types of like free-to-play types of game experiences maybe even in vr2 i'm i'm not an expert on that but i could i could see things like that making sense or how ads can be embedded into certain experiences here and there in non-intrusive ways too so i do think there can be ways for ads to work they just need to to not overstep how they approach it and when they do recognize it and and backtrack a little bit but yeah they're an ads company like that's mm -hmm. not That's not going to change. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I totally, totally agree with that. In the in the same way, we'll converge on best practices on the crypto side of things, all the play to earn stuff. I definitely think, uh, you know, they're not like incompatible for sure. And as you alluded to, like in some instances could probably actually uh, improve the game experience if they're well contextualized, if you're in a stadium for whatever reason, like where you'd expect to see them. Right. But Yeah, it could get pretty pretty messed up if they're like pop-ups in your face and stuff in VR, so we'll see. <laughs> totally. Yeah, that's dystopian. Yeah. Totally. I think, yeah, it's like context. I think I, I think it's a bad thing to, to put ads into games that you pay for. Um, you know, you're asking someone to, you're asking a player to fork up money up front. Uh, and then on top of that thing, you're monetizing them through ads. I think that's a terrible, you know, experience and just value exchange there. I think ads will work for, Again, that, that casual audience that start to do VR for seeing a concert that they want to see through VR lenses and there's like experiences that they want or they want to like 
watch a movie with their friends or whatever it is, but I don't think it's like the hardcore gamers that they should be trying to test ags to because those people are the ones that are going to be buying the high-end devices for from Facebook, the most expensive content that they have. Um, I think that they, you know, the monetization through ads is again going to be more the general audience that only are using VR to either connect with friends that they want to or experiences because every, other people are doing it as well. Yeah, uh, changing gears a little bit, I I have a question, um, sort of about Apple. Like to me, it seems pretty obvious that Apple has a lot of advantages when it when it comes to I guess like what we'll see is like augmented reality, but it also strikes me that a lot of the technology like between augmented reality and virtual reality even though like very different between overlaying something on the world and being immersed in a different world a lot of the technology is similar so i'm i'm curious do you think like right now it's mainly talk is about oculus and all things facebook uh, do you think apple will become a contender in vr as well eventually and does that change how you you view any of this I reckon um, I wouldn't be surprised, put it that way. Uh, you know, they possess the kind of uh, hardware capabilities and whatnot and a lot of the kind of, you know, production pipeline required to execute something like that. Um, I think uh, obviously it kind of makes sense as a first port of call to, to focus on this AR side of things. And But let's like, let's see, you know, whether any of these problems we've described are solved between now and then and whether this VR market really does start to gather momentum, um, at which point, you know, I, I can totally see it making sense to allocate resources in that direction. And I also would love to use an Apple VR headset, whatever the hell that looks like. <laughs> yeah, I would. Yeah, I would love to see them enter the space. I do worry that when your bread and butter comes from you know, like the iPhone, when your bread and butter comes from a specific device or business unit, it's hard to move. I mean, in Facebook, you know, dedicating 20% of their workforce, right, to VR, but like, it's really hard to try, you know, just coming, I guess, from thinking about it from like, trying to change things at a big company, it's really hard to move people or attention away from what makes your money at the end of the day. So they're going to have to make like a pretty concerted effort at the leadership level to be like, we're going to, we're going to go all in and and not give in at the first weakness that VR is not the is not scalable because it won't be scalable for years, for decades, maybe even. And I think that that's the temptation to just fall back on. Like, we're just going to double down on making the iPhone still the center of people's lifestyle, you know. And then I think one day they're going to, you know, if they don't have that mentality that they have to be in this 100 percent and through the failure and the weakness of that, that, um, you know, that's that's something that they just have to, like, keep in mind so apple if you're listening <laughs> but don't don't just hang up don't just sit on your laurels with the iphone <laughs> we'll, we'll, yeah, we'll see agree. i can um yeah, yeah let, let facebook do the market validation do all the hard work and then then jump in <laughs> there you go <laughs> there you go all right so now it's time for our bonus segment which we have called bold predictions super excited let's jump into it uh janie you you can start Oh God, I probably the least prepared for this. Bull predictions. So I've been around in mobile before the app store, before free to play. And I've noticed that the app store was a big disruptor. The free to play model was a big disruptor. And so I do think that play to earn is going to be the next big disruptor. So that's my vanilla bold All prediction. Right. So it's going to have the same effects on the gaming industry as, as those others had. Yes. 
All right. I, I have a question for you then. Um, ah, so something something that I, I think about, and I mean, it, like there's no right answer, I don't think. Um, but you know those like industry charts that kind of size up like, this is how PC has grown over time. Then it stacks on. This is how console has grown. And this is yeah. how mobile has grown. I feel like it's time to update that with like more verticals like VR or like play to earn. And so if we were yeah. to zoom forward 10 years, um, and I'm curious to hear your take on this too. If play to earn was like a like a line on that chart, how, how do you think it'll stack up compared to where some of, I don't know, like the like the other main like pillars are today well uh hard form videos of games is going down digital downloads is still stable on console but mobile sales and revenue is still going up pc actually went up with covid uh so we'll see uh, you know if that settles or if that's still a trend you know it, it but also most games and you know even if you look at the slate of like the big developers out there most games are going to be cross progressive play so this notion of any platform is really going to be kind of muddled it's like you could play you know any game the same fortnite or whatever whether it's on mobile or console or pc or maybe vr or whatever so i i think eventually we'll have to go away with just the platform aspect of the the revenue breakout and think more to maybe on the how players are playing whether they're buying the full product or doing more of that you know play to earn model or free to play i think i'd like to see different models within a game based upon the type of gamer that they are and the experience that they want yeah you outsmarted my question what i what i'm really getting that was like how how big is this like how big is this compared to like like we kind of view like these big like categories today like yeah. like how big do you think this is going to be kind of compared to some of these like major markets today i think play to earn will overtake free to play and i think it's because players are getting frustrated and over the fact that play to earn is so aggressive with monetizing paying players and then sucking the life out of them with nothing literally yeah they they have nothing to show for it they have nothing to take from it and i think that they're going to realize like wait i can play this other game for free but i actually can earn something too while i play this like why wouldn't i do that I, yeah i totally agree my bold prediction unsurprisingly was was actually going to be similar to that effect i was going to try and pick some arbitrary number and time frame but um but yeah i think it's going to be super dramatic you know uh as 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 you're just alluding to i mean Compare the kind of incentive structure of some of the free-to-play mobile stuff, which is, you know, bordering on exploitative sort of psychological practices with these compulsion loops. Compare that to a very positive sum, you know, uh, you're rewarded for your play. You have sort of shared ownership in this thing moving forwards. Like, there's no way this doesn't become one of the more pervasive models in gaming, you know, especially if we're talking on a 10-year time horizon. And I don't think it's even just gaming, right? Like, I think a lot of this decentralized infrastructure and technology is gonna, you know, proliferate across a number of verticals. Um, you know, obviously we're starting to see it with finance. I totally think social media as we know it um, is gonna completely change, but gaming for sure, whether we call them play to earn games in 10 years, you know, I'm less sure of, um, but you know, this crypto infusion, uh, true digital ownership with, you know, blockchain based items and, the ability to participate in the economics of games like you know I, i'd bet that in 10 years at least one of the three biggest games in the world does this to some effect you know um i i totally think that's the way it's going mm -hmm. is yours related to that Aaron, or uh because mine is no i'll i'll go a different path um <laughs> save us i think that 
I think that today's Hollywood is super focused on transitioning to streaming, which has involved mergers and spinoffs and major pivots and investments, etc. But once that transition is more or less stable, I think that Hollywood will next set its sights on the video game industry and conduct pretty serious like mega M&A. And I, th- I think it feels pretty far-fetched right now, even especially given some, some rough history that has occurred there. Um, and it would be tough to execute on. But I think it's realistic, actually, because one, these titans, these entertainment titans, will need another way to grow, especially as streaming starts to decelerate and as cable revenues continue to wane. Um, second, they've already proven comfortable with massive M&A, so it actually wouldn't be crazy for them to think about doing something like that. Three, I think that transmedia storytelling around the largest IPs is going to become more important and big IP owners will view owning studios and publishers as a means of fully owning that experience versus just licensing. Also, you know, large proven gaming companies that these that these like mega entertainment titans would be targeting, uh, you know, provide high margin recurring revenues, which will be coveted. Um, and then lastly, I think that the success of streaming subscriptions, but also Game Pass type subscriptions will motivate Hollywood executives to figure out how to combine those two things with their IP. And we'll see more multifaceted subscription services come out of these, these entertainment titans. Um, which will be really interesting. And so I don't see this happening in today's world. This will take some time to play out. And honestly, it sounds kind of stupid, like <laughs> even thinking about that today. Um, but I, I think that a future Disney, for example, will be open to acquiring something like EA in order to bring, you know, the sports portfolio in-house to be an advantage for ESPN, to bring more like Star Wars stuff in-house and to leverage certain studios for more storytelling. I think that um, Sony may get more aggressive as they see Microsoft get aggressive and then bring even larger studios under its roof, which will spur even more, you know, so-called synergies um, with its film and music businesses too. Um, Warner Bros. Discovery, I mean, they're still merging that together and they have a lot to figure out. So I don't, I don't really know what's going to happen there, but they're sitting on incredible IP too and have a talented games team. So I think that once one entertainment titan pulls the trigger on a big games business, others will start to think it, think about it more too, and potentially follow suit. So I don't know. Maybe I'm insane, but I can. No. I Aaron, see who's going to be the who's going to be the next head of gaming for Netflix? That that wreck is out. Aaron Bush. It's going to be Aaron well, for sure. That that, that, that was a com- that was a compelling prediction, man. Very well articulated. I, I'd hire you. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, thank you. I would not hire me to work in Hollywood, <laughs> for what it's worth, but I, I appreciate that. Th- that's an exciting world, though. Um, can definitely see that happening. Um, and would love to see some of the crazy experiences that come out of that. I know it gets referenced until everyone's sick of it, but the Fortnite Travis Scott concert, I mean, an example <laughs> of an in-game, uh, you know, in-world sort of relatively high production budget, I guess, uh, for something like that. They put a lot of time into it, like... I want more of that for sure. Excited for it. I hope it happens. You will. I mean, this week, it was yesterday or the day before, Roblox announced some deal with Sony to get more of their like musicians in Roblox. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> um, I don't know that. if that's going to be as big as uh, you know what we saw with like Lil Nas X or something. But yeah, I think yeah, Sony wants in on Roblox. Roblox wants 
wants in on all the stuff that Sony has. So we'll we'll see some stuff but, there. But mm-hmm. but I'm curious. You know, you obviously talk about these acquisitions and they want to bring these studios in house so they can own own the full experience. Um, how does that sit versus you know targeting one of these existing game worlds like a Fortnite, like a Roblox, where they already have the player base and building experiences in there? Like, what's the interplay between those two versus a standalone, like you know, sort of in-house experience? How do you think that will manifest? I mean, I think honestly, I I could see like big IPs working with both. I mean, I don't think like like no entertainment giant is gonna buy like Fortnite <laughs> from Epic, <laughs> um, like Roblox. I have like probably is not going to get sold yeah, to anyone. Yeah. It's already a fifty billion dollar business. But I think so. I mean, I think like if the entertainment giants want to do M and A, it'll have to be more, you know, just like more the traditional studio publisher type model. Although mm-hmm. that does that doesn't mean that they can't experiment with some of these other other things. I, I mean, I also think that like when this happens, like these aren't the companies that are gonna be innovating, right? They're just like, would be looking for like big extensions for their IP and wanting to own high margin recurring revenue. And all the innovation would happen elsewhere on the fringes. And they'll be, you know, still as they do today, looking in, trying to figure it out and failing. <laughs> and then years down the line, acquiring something to, to get in. Um, mm-hmm. That's sort of the way it goes i think but who knows who knows awesome that's a really cool prediction so my prediction for what it's worth so in 2017 i was i was developing algorithms for trading on the blockchain and and firsthand i saw the whole bull market in the crypto sphere um, and then i learned that people are extremely greedy uh first and so my prediction my bold prediction is uh, first of all, I agree with uh, Janie and Pierce that NFTs are going to be an integral part of gaming going forward uh, and they're going to be huge. Uh, but I think that initially there's going to be a similar you know, bubble and burst before that happens. So there's going to be these new projects coming out with N- NFT assets and people are going to start playing them, not because the games are fun, but because they see it as an investment and they hope that the value of whatever they accrue while gaming uh, will go up in the future because of the you know the Ponzi effect where others come in and need to buy that because they want to play it as well. And I'm, I think we're going to have a huge bubble there uh, in the not so distant future, uh, after which everything's going to implode and then the the only like the because in the end games need to be fun right that's essential mm-hmm. um and so in the end the only games that will be left are the fun games and then it's going to be a slow climb up to uh to world dominance nice. yeah we'll see i i agree with you that's kind of what i was saying earlier about mm-hmm. like like reddit will fuel <laughs> a lot of the hype um around around this and yeah i don't know maybe uh, in my opinion, maybe we won't see like a big bubble, but we'll see like micro bubbles mm-hmm. and in like these different ecosystems. And yeah, maybe it'll crush some of them. Maybe some of them will come out stronger on the other side. Um, but yeah, that's fascinating. I, I think I agree. I, I probably agree there too. I, I totally think some game ecosystems and economies will get decimated and you'll get, you know, armies of ret scrubs posting on reddit furiously um but you know it's like the way these cycles work you know it's the way they've worked in crypto for many years and it's like a useful learning journey um you know it 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 hardens people it makes people think more critically about what's interesting and what's not um you know it it tests people that think they want to build in a space like that and Ultimately, I think, um, you know, generally speaking, these markets or segments come out the better for it. So Mm -hmm. we'll see. 
yeah hype cycles hit every new emerging technology Mm -hmm. and they can suck sometimes but they also (laughs) bring in a lot of capital um to the industry too which Mm -hmm. helps fuel a lot of good creation over time so I don't know. In a twisted way, it can sort of be healthy mm-hmm. for the ecosystem as a whole, too. Yep. We just need to huddle. Just huddle, man. Amen. <laughs> <Yeah. Hey>, <laughs> All right. Cool. Uh, awesome. That rounds up the episode. I had a lot of fun. I learned a lot. Thanks, uh, Janie, Pierce, and Aaron. It was great having you guys. Thank you, gentlemen. Yeah, this was a lot of fun. Listener, thanks for listening. Uh, if you want to reach us, you can uh, email us at metacast at navig.co or you can reach us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and all that jazz. Until next week, and uh, everyone have a really great weekend. Cheers.